Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews chapter 2 will be in verses 17 through 18 this morning. If you are going to be borrowing a Bible from us, you're welcome to do that, even to take it with you. Um, That hardback Bible in front of you would be page 1002. Now listen as I read God's Word. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And this is God's word for us, an encouraging word for us this morning. On a whim, uh, I got in my little two-and-a-half-year-old daughter's, three-year-old daughter's face yesterday and said, I will be your daddy forever. Forever. I repeated it in some different ways. I wanted to burn it on her soul. And uh, I will do something like that with, with each of my kids. And uh, sometimes these phrases, they, they stick and they make their way uh, to one after another. But if it's coming out of my heart, I will say it. And uh, I was going to bed, I do a little bit early, or go to bed a little early on Saturday night, and um, my youngest got in bed with me, and she said, Daddy, you will be my daddy forever. And I thought, that's perfect. You have no idea what that means. She doesn't know what forever means. I would be shocked if she knew what forever means. She knows what lots of word mean, words mean. But she's learning to put words in a certain order, and she's learning to repeat words. And sometimes those words... Uh, don't make sense to them initially, but they grow to take on meaning and become filled with meaning over time. In that case, it was a, a really important sentence I wanted her to hear, uh, at the end of which came a really important word that she needs. Well, today's text comes to us at the end of a sequence of teaching, at the end of a section of teaching, and it is a word that we need. And in it, there is a word that may be new to us, even if it's familiar to some extent. To some of us, it may be brand new. Some of us may have heard the word and forgotten what it means. I'm a student of theology. This is my job. There are words that are common to describe theological uh, convictions that we believe, summary teachings of the Bible, that I have to look up and remind myself, oh yes, that's right, that's precisely what the scripture says. Well, this may be one of those words for you, I will tell you what it is a little later in the morning if you haven't figured it out already. I want you to remember it, and I don't want you to forget it, and I want to fill it with meaning for us this morning. It's a precious word representing a precious truth. This morning's sermon will unfold in three parts, um, three truths we need in the storm. These are storm-tossed Christians that need an anchor at the end of the line, like we have this word and truth at the end of a sequence of teaching, to anchor what we have been learning, so we need an anchor at the end of our line that we might be saved and safe through the storm and so that we might be sustained in the storms of temptation and trial. And and everything we've been getting in this book of Hebrews so far, in particular these last four weeks, focusing on the necessity of the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God as man. All of it is needed. All of it is necessary for us to hold fast to in order that we might be safe in choppy waters, in choppy winds, in temptation, and in trial. And in this passage here, we have a compact summary followed by a climax of the last four weeks of teaching, followed by a concluding implication. Well, in the first place, a compact summary and a word to you and me. He is like you. Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, He is like you. And you must hold fast to that truth if you are to be safe in the storm. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers 
in every respect. And you think, it seems like I have heard this before and you would be right. We have been in the second chapter of the book of Hebrews. It was necessary, verse 5, it was not the angels that he subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. We don't see everything in subjection to him now, the author wrote, but we see him, Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone there. He came. The Son of God came and he became a human. In verse 10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons of glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He was not ashamed to call us brothers, for he is like us. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And now in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He's, he's hitting a repeated note and he's making an emphatic claim about what happened to the Son of God. And the Son of God was sent and came and became like us. And he says, in every respect, he was fully God, eternal God, the radiance of the glory of God. And he, yet he did not fake his humanity. It says that in every respect, he became like us. He became like us in his development as a human. Well, that has to be one thing that this means, that in every respect, the eternal Son of God became an embryo, became a little baby, was the eternal Son of God pretending to be an infant? Pretending to cry. Pretending to be surprised by something. Oh, that's a question to ponder, isn't it? Do we really believe he was fully God? And fully man? Or was he only part of one and 100% the other? Or was he a percentage one and a percentage the, the other? Well, this passage isn't here to answer every question we might raise about this teaching, but a passage from the book, the letter of uh, Paul to the Philippians, can help us here. And though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross here. So we see teaching on the incarnation, he made himself nothing, he took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. No, it's not that humans are nothing and so he became nothing. But in comparison to God with all of his glory, he became nothing. But it's not that he was then no longer God. It is rather that he took on the form of a servant and he took on humanity. And he humbled himself, key word here, by becoming obedient to the point of death. The Lord Jesus humbled himself. The Son humbled himself by taking on humanity, and in that human, human form, he submitted himself entirely to his Father's will. In his human nature, with a human will, he submitted himself entirely to the Father's will, which meant the, the temporary non-access to perfect knowledge, perfect expression of power. He wasn't, he wasn't walking around restraining himself at every moment from, 
being some superhuman in strength. And he, he was submitted to his father's will. And to the, he submitted the exercise of his own divine attributes and qualities and abilities to the will of his father. And for this time and for this period, a humble human life, which entailed being a baby and not seeing into every soul and not knowing everything that would happen was a part of that suffering which he endured. He became a man. And before he was a man, he was a little baby boy. He became like us in every respect, which includes his human development. With all of the size development, with the smells that come with each age, I presume baby smells and teenage smells, and all of the smarts, or lack thereof, that one would have at any one of those stages. Just let that sink in. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He was a real 10-year-old, and he was a real 12-year-old. And as we'll see, that real likeness in every respect is a comforting truth. And it means that in a way that he couldn't otherwise help us, that's a crazy thought, but I think we have to say it from this passage. In a way that he could not otherwise help us, he is able to help us because he went through all of that. And to the extent that you're experiencing humanity in a difficult time, uh, he understands what you're going through because he has been right there. This in every respect has also to mean every human experience, the experience of full humanity. Uh, outwardly, our, our experience of humans physically with the pains and the pleasures of what it means to be human. And inwardly, with all of the highs and the lows that are involved in being human. Some of us have more emotional range than others. Our highs are higher. And you may be known as a very happy and enthusiastic and exciting person. And maybe what you know that not all others know, is that your lows are as low as your highs. And the Lord has made us not uh, simple, boring creatures without feeling, but He has made us deeply feeling creatures. And the joys are a part of that, and in a fallen world, the sorrows are a part of that. Well, however your highs and however your lows, the Lord knows what it is to have a great day and what it is to be filled with great sorrow on a very difficult day. He cried at the tomb of Lazarus. The shortest verse in our Bibles, Jesus wept. And that's a comfort to us. And it says something to us about what he took on for our sake. That he was made like us in every respect, even that respect. In our human development, in our experience of being humans and in our experience of temptation, which does not mean that he sinned, but Jesus was tempted. He had real temptation. And he really did resist real temptation in a real human body, just like you and I have. Now, he was truly God, but he was not faking his humanity. He was also truly and completely human, made like his brothers in every respect. Well, do you believe that Jesus was human just like you in every respect? Every respect as it concerns your humanity. There may be some obstacles you're not even aware of, uh, just in the air that we breathe and the time in which we live because of the spirit of this age that are in the way between you and a, a clear and a firm grasp on this truth concerning the incarnation. And you need a good grasp on this truth concerning the incarnation, that Jesus was like his brothers in every respect. But there are two obstacles. We are tempted in this age 
if I could put it that way, to define ourselves, even our humanity, by the non-essential parts of ourselves or our, our experience. So we hear at times about one's lived experience. And it's true that you and I each have different experiences in this life. And some of us have it easier and some of us have it harder for any number of a thousand and more reasons. And at times, this matter of your particular experience as a human, your unique, specific story as a human, especially as it connects you with a broader group, victim group, uh, can be used as a ground or authority for what you, uh, what you believe or what you understand to be true. And unless somebody has walked in precisely your shoes and has exactly your unique experience, they can't speak truth into it. And so you have your truth based on your experience, your lived experience. And to the extent that someone can't understand the exact nature of your exact experience, they can't speak truth into it, even if that's truth from the Word of God. So we are ever tempted to define our humanity and to emphasize the non-essential parts of our human experience. We're also tempted to define ourselves by the anti-human parts of our experience. Here's what I mean. When I said, therefore, he had to become made like his brothers in every respect, I was thinking, and you were thinking, oh, wait, but he didn't sin. Yes, of course. And the author of Hebrews will add that qualification and emphasize that piece a little later in this letter. But perhaps one reason we wanted to say to ourselves, oh, oh, he doesn't quite mean every respect because he didn't sin is because we we subtly define what it means to be human by our sinful desires. And even in our age, as Romans 1 asserts, it's not unique to our specific decade or the place in which we live. Give ourselves to the trading of the glory of God for the glory of the creation and exchanging the truth about God for a lie? And where is the exchange of the truth about God for a lie about God most clearly manifest, but in the exchange of the truth about our humanity, our gender, sexuality, the role of sex in marriage, all of this, but the exchanging of all of those truths about humanity for lies about humanity, so that we may invert the truth about us so that we may invert the truth about God. Well, that great exchange is underway all around us so that we are tempted to define our humanity by the desires that we, we find within ourselves so that we might submit to those dire desires and call them good and then define God accordingly. So we are tempted to define our human experience, our humanity, by the non-essential parts of our experience, the unique things about us, and we all have unique things about us. To make the main thing about us, among the least important things about us, and one of the most unique or least important things about us, the main thing about what it means to be human. And we are tempted to define ourselves by the anti-human parts of us. And that's how I'm defining sin. Sin in the perversion of sin is actually anti-human. It's not just who I am. It's not just how I am. It's actually against who you are in your truest, deepest self as a human, as a human being. But praise God, he is about through Christ bringing many sons to glory and to the glory of all that he intended for us as humans, exemplified for us in Christ who was crucified and then raised to new life to bring us into that life. Now, Jesus was not faking humanity. He was a real human. Do you believe that he was really made like you in every respect? Do you believe that he had to be made like you in order to save you? Because that's what it says here. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That leads us to our next encouraging 
truth, a word from God. For Jesus had to be made completely like us in order to do what he did for us. He is not only like you, but he, friends, is for you. He is for you. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect that was utterly and completely necessary in order, purpose clause, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. We're going to meditate on this portion of the verse through the prism of that word propitiation, and there's the word. The word you're familiar with, the word you may well know, the word you may never have heard before. The word some translators debate as to whether they should translate it with this word because if you type it into Google, it might not know what it is. It's a word that is not used on the street. But it is a word, as I've suggested, that we need, and the Lord has given it to us. Well, what does it mean, and is it a mean word? I'll explain. What does it mean? Well, very simply, propitiation means to avert the wrath, used here, to avert the wrath of God, to avert His just judgment against our sin. It suggests that His judgment and His wrath was coming at you, for you, towards you, and not arbitrarily, but very specifically and on purpose, because you and I deserve it, but that Christ has propitiated that wrath. He has satisfied it. He has absorbed it. And in that way, he has averted it. A helpful illustration is that of a lightning rod. The lightning, a strike, if you will, of God's judgment coming for you, averted by the lightning rod of the Messiah, Christ, Jesus, takes that judgment, that bolt of wrath for you. That's what this word propitiation entails. Now, is it a mean word? Is it a mean word? Some say this is a mean word. Theological liberals in the early part of the 20th century made great pains to redefine this, to suggest and to argue that propitiation is not what is meant here, but rather, maybe we'd say expiation. It refers to cleansing of sin, but not the absorbing of punishment against sin. Others have argued that this refers more generally to atonement, uh, making things right, reconciling our relationship with God rather than propitiating, absorbing God's wrath against us. Back in the 80s, I believe that it was, I'm working from memory here, uh, this one theologian in supposedly conservative school was drifting, suggested that this doctrine of propitiation Uh, represented divine child abuse, that God the Father would punish his son to save sinners. What kind of a God would do that? Why doesn't he just save the sinners and get over the sin? But the suggestion even under that was that the sin isn't really that big of a problem, or they define it in a particular way that doesn't require wrath at all. Back in the 2000s, the emergent church movement was, was percolating and emerging and lots of writing going on there. And if you had ears to hear, you could pick up on what they were doing with not only the authority of Scripture, but with the cross and one Brian McLaren, um, who is mostly forgotten now, and that's a good thing, was doing a lot of writing. And if you, were, if you were reading him carefully, you would realize he was saying things that struck a nerve and it scratched itches and he had no answer for our deepest problem. And in fact, he was subverting, subverting good questions about what happened on the cross. Here's even from his website today. 
a question asked of him. Just follow me here. I want to ask you something that's been on my mind lately. One writer asks, do you think systematic theology sometimes overcomplicates things? The reason why I ask is because I'm not a trained theologian. I love to study theology. I love getting new insights about Scripture. After a while, though, I get confused about what I should believe about sin, the cross, the resurrection. Is substitutionary atonement the right way to interpret the cross? Substitution, as in Christ dies in the place of sinners, taking the wrath of God for them. Is substitutionary atonement the right way to interpret the cross, or is it Christus Victor? Which means Jesus is the victor over sin and death. After rereading all four Gospels, I now lean towards the latter. He's the victor. Is sin something you do or a state of being? And if you're as over-analytical as I am, you can really drive yourself crazy with all these questions. I think that's why I'm a more of a narrative approach to the Bible person. A good story can change your whole perception on life. You end up thinking about things you never thought about before. And if a regular story written by a man with no divine inspiration can change your perception, how much more can divinely inspired biblical narrative change us? It starts off with systematic theology, which involves clear questions about God and salvation and humanity, looking to the scripture for answers, and ends by saying, I think I'm more of a narrative storytelling approach kind of person with theology rather than a systematic theology person. And right in the middle of there are questions about sin and questions about what happened on the cross. Specifically, is it that he died in the place of sinners to take God's wrath, or is it that he's the victor over sin and death? You can ask your pastors a question like this, and I would hope you would know, have an ear for what you should hear. Well, it's about as long, but let me read his answer. I think there are several dimensions to your question. Let me mention just three. First, I think systematic theology was intended to simplify, not complexify, to take the complexity out of the Bible and ongoing reflection upon Bible thought and the Christian experience, and and organize key ideas under simple logical headings. This all becomes a problem, though, if the logical headings or categories we choose don't match the realities we're supposed to be systematizing. It's also a problem if the material we're trying to analyze and organize is supposed to contain tensions and arguments that aren't meant to be integrated into one statement. Maybe some of your frustration is with systematic theology relates to these complications. Second, I agree with you that a narrative approach is very productive. The problem is that one can choose and impose any number of narrative structures on the biblical text, so it's an important tool, but not a foolproof panacea. It's interesting that systematic theology tends toward tends to work by analysis, breaking holes down into parts, or narrative theology looks for patterns of plot and tension and mission that unites parts to whole. So does a dialogical approach, and it goes on about that. Third, as you may know from my book, A New Kind of Christianity, I think a lot depends on what we assume and what assumptions we bring to the term divinely inspired. For so many people, the term implies divinely inspired constitution or inspired textbook, which Invite very different kinds of reading on reflection. Keep up the good thinking without, as we are all prone to do sometimes, overanalyzing. So a writer is asked about the nature of Scripture and how to answer certain questions, and he has said, there are some dimensions to your question. And he's pontificated in what sound like profound and legitimate ways about that. And he has left the soul without an answer. In particular, he did not answer the question about what happened on the cross. And may I tell you why? For he writes elsewhere, Whatever you think of Edward's sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the conventional doctrine of hell has too often engendered a view of a deity who suffers from borderline personality disorder or some, or some worse sociopathic diagnosis. Here's what he thinks about the God who crushes his son for sinners. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And if you don't love God back and cooperate with God's plans in exactly the prescribed way, God will torture you with unimaginable abuse forever. And so hell is not a thing. The enemy, so to speak, is God's just wrath 
at our sin. He's caricaturing what I'm teaching here. And Jesus' death absorbs God's wrath. See, he understands. How does punishing an innocent person make things better? That's what he says about the cross. That just sounds like one more injustice in the cosmic equation. And he picks up this line. It sounds like divine child abuse, you know. These guys always answer with a question. So I was youth pastoring during these days, and this guy was pumping the books out, and they were in the system, and they were around. And I was getting questions about him. I got a question by a friend from across the country about this very guy who's reading his book, charitably, eagerly, interestedly, just this last week. Have ears to hear when something is not being said. And just because something sounds profound doesn't mean that they've got the heart of the matter right. And if you miss the heart of the matter, you lose it all. One more anecdote. These days, in the 2020s, it's not the emergent church pastor types. It's, it's the LGBTQIA inclusive types. One Austin pastor with some 30,000 followers on Twitter. If that means anything to you. That's a lot of followers. Whose Instagram page is filled, just filled with comments on these issues that I just mentioned. Says this about the cross. Jesus did not come to save us from God's wrath. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, came to save us from sin and death the true objects of God's wrath. The cross is where God in Christ destroys evil, not where Christ keeps God from destroying us. The cross and resurrection are certainly complex. I always use that word. But I fear we've taken a story about God crushing evil and made it into a story about God crushing his son. We've taken a story about God destroying sin and made it about God destroying almost everything in us. But that's simply not true. The truth is that God doesn't hate humanity because we sin. God hates sin and the evil behind it because they hurt humanity. And of course, you read a line like, he doesn't hate humanity. And you think, yes, yes, yes. He so loved the world that he sent his son. Category confusion. It's false dichotomies and they slide right through it. A false teaching. And so you need to read more of the Bible than you need to read Twitter or popular books. But just look with me on the page here so I can show you that it's not God is against evil and the devil and sin, but for us. Verse 14 of chapter 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things. So this is why the son became man, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. So one way to look at the cross is to say Jesus dies as an example for sinners. He dies as an example of sacrificial love. And and so the, 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 the focus of the death is aimed at the sinner so that the sinner would follow in the example of love and sacrifice and be transformed by the example. Now that might preach. Another way to look at the atonement, using this very verse, is to say, no, 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 the cross is not aimed at the sinner with an example. The cross is aimed at Satan with a ransom. And we're told that Christ died as a ransom for us. But then they press that image all the way and say, Satan was holding us hostage. And the reason why the son had to come down was to take the keys, pay the ransom, And liberate us from captivity to Satan and to sin and to death. And you think, I think I hear it. But then we have to reconcile that with this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see... Jesus' work as one who suffers under the wrath of God against sin, which the sinner committed, to take away our penalty by taking it on himself is how he frees us from the devil. 
and from the fear of death. It is not that the devil held God and his people hostage until God paid some ransom and the devil gets away with the ransom and God gets away with the people. And this is where systematic theology is actually very important. Where we ask ourselves questions for how we might reconcile these very things. And we are led to Bible verses just like this. Our deepest problem is at the bottom part of this whole string of teaching. It is our own sin. And that's why we need a human to represent us before God to take our punishment. And that is why he had also to be God. Because we as humans, sinners that we are, cannot offer a satisfying punishment to God. But for an eternity in judgment. And there are plenty of passages that speak very clearly about this. Yes, Jesus died, and he is an example for us of love and sacrifice, but it is precisely because he died for his enemies, you see. Not just his friends. He makes his enemies his friends. Yes, Jesus defeats the devil and is victorious in battle, but there is no victory against the devil or against death apart from freeing actual sinners who were at enmity with God who were guilty of sin and were receiving the just wrath of God without freeing them from that. And that's why we need a merciful and faithful high priest to propitiate, to absorb the wrath of God against you and me. This all begins and ends with our understanding of the character of God and the condition of human beings. And if you're not willing to say that God is utterly and completely holy and that human beings are utterly destitute and lost in ways that we can't even perceive because we're the sick ones who are blind in our sin. We confess that to be true about God and about us in the Bible and we find an answer that deals with it right here. But if you're not willing to confess God is holy and you're not willing to confess man is inside out, backwards, upside down, broken, sinful, rebel, enemies, every one of us, then you don't need a cross. But if you're a Christian pastor and you've built a following off of being a Christian pastor, well, it's kind of hard to leave all that when you start to have your doubts about hell and about sin and and all the rest. So this is how I think half the time it happens, the theologian or the pastor. They're embarrassed for the basic beliefs of Christianity that make it a foolish gospel, a foolish religion before the world. And so they find a way to keep, we are tempted to find a way to keep Christianity and not have to keep the heart of Christianity, the cross and what it really means. And so Brian McLaren in this case redefines what inspiration and inerrancy means and what the scripture has in terms of authority and he redefines what the cross means and he mutes and doesn't teach on the doctrine of hell and eventually he teaches on the universal salvation of human beings. This is par for the course. It is a repeated pattern and you can figure out what's going on deep down with a preacher or a writer or a Christian by what they're saying about what happened on the cross. So what do you say? How do you answer the question what happened on the cross. Was Jesus giving us an example of love? Mainly. Was Jesus paying a ransom payment to the devil to to be victorious over death and to free you, a mere victim of the devil? Or was Jesus, according to Isaiah 53, suffering under the will of the Father That will of which was to crush him for the sins of his people. And is this mean? Is it mean to the son? Is it mean to us that we would believe in this kind of God? Well, in the first place, he uses the word propitiation. But in the second place, he uses other words too. For Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest. He became a merciful high priest. That word mercy is a word that's used of of Yahweh in the Old Testament. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. This is the one true God. If he is angry with us in our sin and if he has wrath against a sinner in sin, it is only because he is a God who is slow to anger and we have brought him there. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works, Scripture says of him. And here of Jesus, it was necessary that he became like us in every respect. How gracious is he? In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He is merciful toward you and me. The Son is, the Father is, God is merciful toward you and me in this gift of the Son as a sacrifice to take the wrath of God. Faithful toward us, merciful toward us. But Jesus, in this role as a priest, was also faithful toward God. So let us not think that Jesus is the good one who loves us and jumps in front of the mean father's wrath. The father who's really against us and is the mean one. No, Jesus in his role as a high priest who offers himself as a sacrifice was merciful toward you and me, but he was faithful toward God. You see? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. This was our triune God's plan from all eternity to redeem a people for himself through blood. No, it is no mean word or idea. It is a gracious word. It's a merciful word. It's a faithful word. And it's a true word. It speaks a true word about God and about us. Grammatically speaking, in the flow of this letter to this point, propitiation is the purpose of the incarnation. Propitiation is the purpose of the incarnation. It was necessary that the eternal Son of God become human in order that he might avert the wrath of God against sin. It was absolutely necessary. He had to, it says. Necessary that the eternal Son of God become human in order to avert the wrath of God against human sin. And there cannot be propitiation without the incarnation, which is why the coming of God as man in every respect is so precious to us. And it's why laying firm hold and holding fast to the truth that God has become fully man is not the only truth you need, but lay hold of that. Because that leads you to the anchor. In this passage, the anchor which is propitiation. A truth and a chain of truths that leads us to the high priest and his work as a propitiation for sins. So, is Christ your propitiation? Are you saved? You see, that's a specific way to even ask that question. I wouldn't recommend asking that of your neighbor necessarily. But to be specific, you know, you don't need to know the word to be saved. But you can't be saved without propitiation. And so, in baptism interviews and in Membership interviews, we ask questions about the cross and we ask questions about what it means to be a Christian and not trying to give it all away. But every sermon is actually giving it all away, right? Should. Well, at the heart of the matter is what Jesus did on the cross for us. Not what we do, not what he's doing in me, not what I believe about the Bible. Those things lead us to the heart of the matter, which is what did he do on the cross? So what do you believe Jesus did on the cross for you? What do you believe that he did for you on the cross? What comes out of your mouth and out of your mind when you hear about the cross? Is it, is it a God's dying love for me is an example for me to follow? Is it there he is defeating my enemy, the devil? Well, that's not enough. 
And you don't need theologically precise terms or phrases. But do you say things like, there he died for me, instead of me? And if asked to explain a little more, do you say, well, because of my sin, he had to die to forgive me? Well, if you're talking that way, you likely get it. Talking about Jesus as a substitute in your place, and you're talking about Jesus as one who has faith in him. Let me read for you a precious passage on this matter of propitiation. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you say, I'm a sinner? I am a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does it mean that He redeemed us and how did He justify us? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, you see, because in the death of Christ, God is proving that he's righteous. He's let sinners off the hook to that point, but he's proving that he punishes sin. He's a just judge on the cross. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time in order that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has Here it is, faith in Jesus. So because Jesus on the cross averts the wrath of God, all you bring to the table, which is really not the right way to say it, is faith. All you show up with is open arms to receive all that he gives. Salvation. All that he purchased by the blood of his son, mercifully and faithfully to give to you. So are you saved? Has someone qualified to do so averted God's wrath for you? Are you still under the wrath of God? Or has it been absorbed by someone else? Oh, Christ is a qualified priest for he is fully God and fully man. 900 years ago, Anselm says it could not have been done unless man paid what was owing to God for sin. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it, so that the same person must be both man and God. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person, so that he who in his own nature ought to pay and could not, should be in a person who could. Another way to put the question is, when you look back to the cross and you see the Son of God dying, Do you see your death to sin and judgment that you deserve? You may not know when it is you've placed your faith in Jesus, but it seems to me that the question the Scriptures is putting to us is this. Is your faith in Jesus and in Him alone? Your only qualified one who is fully man and fully God, who can take the wrath of God for you. And friend, if your faith is in him this morning, then you can have the assurance that you are safe from the wrath of God. Christ is like you. He is for you. He died for you. And take comfort, he is with you. Verse 18, in a theme that we'll hear more in our series. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so we look back at the cross And we consider the suffering of Jesus where he died to take our sin on himself. But we also look back on his humanity and his suffering to understand how in this very moment he is able and willing to help us in our temptations against sin. We look to the past, not merely to believe what happened there, but to receive salvation now and to be helped in our temptations now. 
you are not left alone in the face of your temptations, but you have a very able God so that in trusting him, you may not sin. And take comfort that in the person of his son, Jesus, he has been there for you. He has suffered temptation and he is sympathetic and he understands and he stands ready and willing and able to help. So do you know that you need help this morning? And that is one diagnostic question to get under the surface of things to discern whether you are saved and have this comfort. And if your answer is yes, it's why I came this morning because I need help. Not, I came this morning because I don't need help and want to prove it to everybody. I came this morning because I'm a helpless sinner apart from Christ. And even today as one saved by his propitiary death, I am nevertheless helpless in the face of temptation without his help. And so friend, storm-tossed friend, lay hold of your anchor who is Christ, of his incarnation a strong link in that chain which leads us to the bottom, which is his propitiation. Fix your eyes on him, consider him, look to him. And remember that he is your identical, your merciful, your faithful, and your ever and always and even now helpful high priest. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this word about our Lord and about all that you are for us in him. We praise him as a suffering one who loved us and gave himself for us. And we thank you that he gave his life for us and so freed us from our captivity to sin and the devil and a fear of death. And we thank you as well, Father, that the Son has died in our place to take your wrath because you are merciful and because he is merciful in order that we may be delivered from the fear of death. You are doing so many things on the cross, but the one thing that we must confess in the first place is that you have died for sinners in the person of your Son, By sending Christ, you have sent Christ to save sinners by dying in their place. And we give you thanks as well that you help us in temptation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.